Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Another episode of the Sure Word Study. We're finishing up uh, lesson three, what God is really like. Big question, what is God like? The big answer to it as well. But uh, picking up in the lesson, we're going to finish part two of it. It starts on page 34. And I'll read to you the first paragraph here that kind of sets up what we're going to be delving into. The author says, Not only is the Son the Creator, as confirmed in the previous passages, but biblical evidence shows that He is also, Sorry, the, Lord, also the Lord God of the Old Testament, as well as the Lord Jesus in the New. Has anybody ever heard that concept before? That the Lord God in the Old Testament is also the Lord Jesus in the New. Always grew up thinking that way. Yeah. Um, I kind of had my revelation when reading Genesis and, uh, and saying God created in our image. Great point. I like all that. There's a big long verse there Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. And. This is one of the big biblical evidences that the author here puts into place that talks about it. And I'll just read it real quick as we go down through, because uh, it kind of sets up as we move forward. Nehemiah 9, 6 through 15. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws. By the hand of Moses, your servant, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. That's like a 50,000 foot view of the Old Testament right there, isn't it? There's a lot to unpack. Do you think that passage in and of itself, though, supports the, I'll say the, you know, perspective of the author that Jesus is the Lord God in the Old Testament? Or do you think we need a little bit more to go along that? More. Need more, don't we? Yeah. I think it's just a tough concept because we, you know, the... The, the conventional earthly wisdom is Jesus wasn't born until 
zero. Right. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, Jesus wasn't hadn't become a man yet. Uh, the author here highlighted the Apostle Peter. He says, the Apostle Peter may have had this in mind when he said, in Acts 4, 10 through 12, does someone want to read that for us? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? So he makes the, the point, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And then what the following paragraph here, Apostle Paul, when he wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, he said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Did any... So when I read that, the word mediator, I underlined that a little bit. What do you all think of that idea? One mediator. What comes to mind when you think of that? I struggle a little bit with it because Jesus is supposed to be one of us. Okay. So, you know, just uh, for for a little bit, the you know, but but he was. He's not one of us, and we learned that. He did come, and he lived as man, but he he was definitely a, a little bit different than the rest of us, for sure. Hmm. So. I thought about um, Catholicism, where it says there's one God and one mediator. Um, there are some religions that feel like they have to go to a priest or rabbis, whatever. Mother Mary. To, yeah, Mother Mary, to mediate between them and God, mm -hmm. um, like they have to have, you know, and it's not so. Jesus is the only mediator that we have. But uh, I think, I, you know, but yeah, I think you can put that on any quote unquote, um, not the word religion, but the, but the differences, denominations. You can yes. kind of like, I yes. need to talk to my minister, I need to talk to my pastor, I need to talk to whatever, you know, I think I, that can be. I think applied to any any of them. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a difference between going to somebody to confess your sins and just talking to your pastor. So let's let's focus on connecting all these different pieces to the idea of a mediator. The author brings up in that next paragraph, right below First Timothy two five, there is one mediator or intermediary or connector between God and man. It's not the Father; He remains on the throne. It's not the Holy Spirit; He's the Helper living in the heart. The mediator is the Son. He's the link between heaven and earth. This has been the role from the beginning. If you think about it in our world today, if two people were at odds and having a difficult time reconciling, we would bring a mediator to come in to help work with the reconciliation. Okay? So that, to me, when I see that word, the mediator, that's what I'm thinking. Okay? But, depending on your view of God, who's being reconciled to who? Is Jesus there reconciling an angry God to you? Or is Jesus there reconciling you to God because you're the one that changed? So that's very interesting, two different views to interpret that. And and you made you guys made the point when you're talking about some of the religions who kind of focus on we need this mediator because you know we have to go through this person and get to God because a change needs to be made in God, right? So that that's where all of that kind of comes from. 
Um, any other thoughts on that page before we flip it over? Uh, that kind of brought to my mind, though, too. One God, one mediator. Uh, there are so many different belief systems. So many different ones. You know, we've got one God, one Lord, one Jesus, one Spirit. You know, I mean, how do we get so, all the, you know, so diverse? But yet, there's got to be just one truth, too. You know. Check out Isaiah 6, 3, 63, 7 and 8. And this is, a, I think, a really good segue into the next point here where we're kind of understanding how, how could Jesus be the God of the Old Testament. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitudes of his loving kindness. Here's the point that, here's the part that I think really stands out with all of this. The passage goes on to say, For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie, so he became their savior. Interesting how Isaiah kind of brings that point out that God said, I will choose. I will make a covenant and I will do these things. Right? That's a really interesting point to consider. We can't go to heaven to, to God. God must come down to us. And the Son did that as creator and savior. To your point, what do you guys think of that idea? God has to come down to us. So if there's only one God, but there's so many different kinds of people at different levels of understanding. Because how we're looking at it is very limited. We're looking at it as a, a human being, which a normal human being has one personality, one characteristic, okay. or not one characteristic, but characteristics that are mm -hmm. specific for that person. Mm -hmm. where, where God, number one, he created all of that, so obviously he's going to have the recipe for, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, encapsulating all that, you know what I'm trying to say. Well, I guess an analogy would be like, you know, you have a truck. So different people's approach to that truck will vary. Like a driver will approach the truck differently than a mechanic will. A mechanic will approach the truck differently than what the engineer did when they were designing the product. So all, people will look at different facets of God as in their own individual walk. And, you know, and I think, you know, God wants to reveal himself to people, but, you know you have to go and look for it. And, you know, and it's, it's you know, and, and different people are in different levels of their search. That's good. The lesson here says, he, he writes it plainly, um, that if the Father came instead of the Son, <clears throat> that the outcome would be exactly the same. And he quotes John 10.30, I and my Father are one, and then he quotes John 16, 26, and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, listen to this, let this blow your mind. Yes. Jesus' words, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. 
Jesus himself said, I will not pray the Father for you. You can go to the Father yourself. He loves you. How much are we taught in Christianity that if you want to get to the Father, you got to go to Jesus? Well, and we're all taught that. We're taught that with Jesus' death, that he stands between, at least that's why I was taught this all my life, that he stands between me and the Father. So when the Father looks at me, he only sees Jesus. But that's not true according to this verse. It's just not true. It's That's false theology. Hmm. It's not true. When I read that verse last week, it kind of blew me away. You know. I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit here because I'm a little, little confused on the little bit before. Mm. So, who did people pray to before Jesus came to earth? I guess Father God. They okay. prayed to God, right? So, but there wasn't, but there wasn't, there wasn't a concept of God being as a human prior to Jesus coming here. So that's why I'm a little, I'm a little, little, other than the made in, confused in, on that. Other than made in God's image. The, you know, in Genesis, where yeah. so that's that's an early text. You know, so I think that it was always understood that God is a humanoid, that we were created in His image. So tie that in to what the lesson's pointing out. That how right because right now contextually tied into Jesus is the Lord God in the Old Testament as well as the Lord Jesus. Christ and that's where that's where I'm a, that's where I'm definitely my brain is going. So maybe we need to keep moving through and see if there's some. More answers that come out? Because I read this last night and that confused me last night too and I'm still... More, more Yeah. I was I was also wondering about that verse that says where Jesus was talking. You know, he said no one comes to the Father except through me. And I was wondering how... That, that I understand. How does that but, I, but I'm going back to... Unfortunately, I'm going back to Old Testament times and that's where I'm confused on how it applies to the Old Testament. That there was... God was among the people, and I, you know, and I, that's a that's God was among the people, and I'm I'm. So when Jesus was here on Earth, we 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 were able to look the humans or mankind was able to look at him and know that he was the Son of God, and you know because we knew that you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and so forth and so on. But did people see someone they saw the Father prior to Jesus coming? That uh, maybe I'm really digging too deep into this, but. But who did people see? You see me, you see the Father. But before Jesus walked the earth, who did they see to see the Father? They saw the Father. Adam and Eve saw the Father. What what form was he? Maybe he was here in human form then. You know, became more human form like them because they used to walk and talk in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. So or, how or did they or did they see the Father or feel the Father through the Holy Spirit? Again, it's a rabbit trail. That's good. I, I'm, I'm digging all this. So, real quick though, I don't want to leave this this uh, point unaddressed, and we just move on from it. Morgan brought up a really good point that we should address here. Just take a couple seconds, uh-huh. maybe, and focus on it. Jesus says, "No one comes to the Father except through me." Jesus says, "In that day, you asked me to pray to the Father, and I will not do that." The Father Himself loves you. How do we make sense of that? I think Jesus was taking on the human thing of saying, don't pray to me, pray to God. 
look at his own brethren who didn't accept him in his walk. And, you know, and I'm talking about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the people of the Sanhedrin who just were stiff-necked and were like, no, Jesus is no, he's a problem. False. Right. So they, they still pray to the same God, but they don't accept one of the Godhead. How do you ask that question? I don't know. That's why I asked. <laughs> what about the idea that nobody comes to Father except for me because we had misconceptions of the Father. We had total misconceptions of the Father. So when Jesus came, he said his role was to show us the true character of the Father. So he said, you know, you can't come correctly to the Father except through me, through the, through the examples that I set, through the lessons that I taught to show you who the true father is. So if we go go through the examples or the lessons of Jesus, then we can get truly to the right character of God and have that right concept. So I like what she said. And yeah. and I'll add I'll add to that. And so here's how I understand it. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because without Jesus, we wouldn't know the kind of person God is. So Jesus says if you want to know the kind of person that God is in terms of his character then you got to look at my life. At Collective Journey, our church, one of the three pillars of our mission statement is um, seeking God's goodness as revealed in Jesus, specifically, right? So you can't get to understanding who God is without looking at the life and example of Jesus. When you get to that point, right? So to your other part here, Morgan, then why did Jesus say, if you pray to the Father, I'm not going to do that for you? The Father himself loves you. <coughs> Jesus is, is I, I believe, he's focusing on a little bit of a different issue. He's focusing on people who have a distorted view of God, that God is angry with them, that there's a change that needs to happen in God. In other words, there's a wrathful God here that needs to be sacrificed or appeased or something like that so that he'll hear our prayers. Well, I think it's kind of a way of saying keep Father in, in the conversation. Don't just... Come to me expecting me to relay what you say to the Father. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. I think think he's like, like the first line is like kind of a metaphysical, like you can interpret it many different ways, so that that makes sense. Yeah. Let's jump down to the bottom of page 36 I highlighted something in the last paragraph since we now understand that the God of the Old Testament was not the Father but the Son and I know some of us were still kind of as a group processing that we could ask how could Christ Jesus do some of those dreadful things we read about God doing in the Old Testament because Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday today forever and ever and ever he's the same so how on earth if it's true that Jesus is in fact, you know, Jesus, meek and mild, love this little child, sweet, gentle Jesus that you read about in the Gospels, could do some of the things that you read about in the Old Testament. He could kill the firstborn of Pharaoh, drown the whole army in the Red Sea, bring the flood, wipe out the whole human race except for eight people. Be one of the three angels that went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Be one of the three angels, thank you. Yes. How could he do all that stuff? Well, check out the verse there, Hebrews 8, 7, and 8. He brings out a really good point. For if that first... So, 
he, before we get into that, someone read for us the top sentence. 30, page 37, what's that top sentence say? And that's true. God never changes, but people do. Note the following text. Go ahead, read it. 878. Yep. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So what do they bring out in that text? People changed. Right? And this actually connects, Mom, to your point at the beginning of our discussion about the many different aspects and how God, right? People change. So are we going to talk to a 5-year-old the same way we're going to talk to a 15-year-old? No. In the same way we're going to talk to a 25-year-old or a 50-year-old? All of those, right? So you can be the same person, but how you're addressing people in all of those different stages of development are going to be very different. Sure. And you could be teaching them the same concept. Principally, you could be teaching them the same principle. But the way you apply that is going to look very different through their development. Right? right? So there are times when I need a still small voice. There are times when I need thunder and lightning like a Mount Sinai. There are times when our children need thunder and lightning like Mount Sinai. And there are times where they need a still small voice. Right? Does that make us different people? Are you approach the needs of the person at the time? Mm-hmm. I heard it being said, like, if your kid is walking out in the middle of the street and there's a car coming towards them, you're not like, hey, come yeah. here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Go tackle, yell at them and tackle them out of the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good metaphor, too. I love that metaphor, actually. Um, check out the point here. The author brings about... Um, Toward the end of that middle paragraph, he starts bringing about the the idea that the ancient biblical writers of the Old Testament did not know that Satan existed. What did you guys think of that idea? That was an interesting thought. They didn't have knowledge that there was another supernatural, super powerful presence. I think the knowledge was there. It's just they as in mass did not understand that Mm -hmm. because when Moses wrote Job and you know these other books it was stated yes so these are early writings Mm -hmm. Moses wasn't the first to come up with that story so I mean all the ancient folks I think that were God fearing folks understood the dynamic I believe Mm mm-hmm that's a good point. I think it was just knowledge may be lost. So the author here brings, and he actually gives some some biblical evidence to support this idea when he says that, you know, ancient Israel, they're so weak to follow and so willing to follow pagan gods. What does the Bible say? God was there on Mount Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments, and he was he was there talking to them. The, the Hebrews were captive for 400 years. Exactly. Long time. 400 years yeah. is a long time. Yeah. For, I mean, think about, you know, we, ha- we haven't been a country for 400 years yet. Yeah. 
So it's, you know, when you put that into perspective, how different people were in the 1700s as they are today. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, those people, the views of God were of Ra and, you know, and the sun gods and the things like that they would sacrifice children to and mm -hmm. things, you know, so their view of God was harsh. So the Israelites, when they were pulled out of, the, out of captivity, were in that condition. Absolutely. So imagine people on the street, tatted up with bone in their nose. That's that's where they were. Yep. And they worship the most powerful. Mm -hmm. Right? So the lesson author brings out that point that since they worship the most powerful, had God openly revealed to them the presence of Satan, because our first, second lesson talked about the origin of evil, and we kind of went into all of that. If God openly revealed to them the existence of Satan, well, let's go worship that guy. Right? He's powerful and he's mean. Don't want to make him mad. I've just realized that maybe that's why he, the, the plagues had to be. Because he had to show them his power. He had to show them who he was. Because after 400 years, they didn't even know. Well, the scriptures say, or about the plagues in Egypt, that God, the, the specific plagues that God used were plagues um, toward the gods of the Egyptians. Correct. Specifically. So he had to. So he had to show the Israelites who. The I'm power more powerful that he had, than your God. Exactly yes. to get their attention. Yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't have followed Moses and gone yeah. out. Yeah. And then the magicians tried to keep up with it. So when they mm -hmm. threw their staves down, you know, they turned to snakes. But then Aaron's rod ate their rods. Mm -hmm. And you know, and they also turned water into blood. But they couldn't keep up beyond that. I think Joe has a comment. And I think Morgan has a comment, and then we'll get back to our lesson. So tie it into what we're talking about. I don't have a comment. Okay. <laughs> Put a ribbon around it. You got something? You're just, you're just over there like your wheels are burning. A little bit. Someone read for us Isaiah 45, 6, and 7. Check this. When I read this verse, like, what? That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, from the rising to the setting sun, that means 24, 7, 365, that there is none other than me. God is saying, there ain't no such thing as God except for me. Which means, God here is saying, if you get a blessing, I did it. If you get killed, I did it. If you prosper, I did it. If the Philistines show up and wipe you out, I did it. That's what God's saying. How do we make sense of that? Third paragraph. In portraying himself in this way, God was meeting the Israelites where they were in hopes that one day they would come to see that he was the true God and there really is no other. To your point, Morgan, if your kid's running toward the street and you are hollering and screaming and terrifying, do you accept the responsibility that this potentially is going to make my kid really afraid of me, but I would rather him be more afraid of me than challenge the law of physics and end up bone squashed on the front of that truck? Right. Right? That's exactly what I see God doing here. 
Because, like, you know in your heart, you know what I mean? You want what's good for your kids. And then the, the Bible author here gives some evidence with the book of Job about how Satan was there, have a heavenly council, challenging God, right? Satan caused a whole bunch of problems, but then toward the end of like verse 9, 10 of Job chapter 2, Job's wife comes to him and says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept God, good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin. So Job himself, right? To your point, Mark, yeah, Moses wrote this, so obviously he knew, but Job didn't know that there was yeah. another force at play. Well, that, uh, I think where the confusion could be, and I, for one, am part of it, is, well, if God does this, I thought God was love. Well, or is love, sorry. He's taking accountability, at least. By saying that he's that he's uh, he creates peace, but also or he makes peace and creates calamity. He's just not lying to you. If you jump to page forty, there is another example given here in this lesson, where a situation happens and God is blamed for it happening. Now, this also looks like there's an apparent contradiction in the Bible in this situation. Some read for us First Chronicles ten three through five. Joe, go for it. Uh, the battle, <clears throat> the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, "Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me." But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. Sword and died. So how did Saul die right there in that passage? Killed himself. Killed himself. Killed himself. Yep. But just uh, what ten verses later, the Bible oh, okay. says, "So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him." Therefore he, he's referring to God there, right? Therefore God killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of God. So, did God kill Saul or did the king commit suicide? Is this one of the parts where God does things to for the betterment of people? You know, why did God do certain things? Because they had to learn something. They had like the flood and everything. Mark, comment. I don't look at it so much as, as God killing Saul, but God allowing Saul to be killed. You know, you read it, you know, about David's mighty men, how like one one soldier would wipe out a thousand. It wasn't because they were great fighters, it's because God protected that person. You know, and you know, Saul, he went to the Witch of Endor, he went and got, you know, advice from other sources and unfortunately God's like I can't help you anymore and he withdrew his protection rather than God throwing him through with a couple arrow, arrows making him make a bad decision so 
to, to note, though, to bring it back to tie it into what the lesson is, we're trying to kind of understand if it's Jesus in the Old Testament, then how do we reconcile the differences between the personalities? Because it definitely looks like a different... A lot of people... I mean, we had a small group here years ago, Sarah, I think, when Moyers were present and all that. If you remember Mr. Moyer, he... Like, you couldn't get past him. No, that's the Father in the Old Testament. And that's Jesus the Son in the New Testament. Like, there was no discussion. That is a different entity of part of God. But to do what right. Jesus said, though, it's like, you interchange us, we're the same. Mm-hmm. And so, let's say it was the Father who came down in Jesus' form, and Jesus the Son was somehow the person on the throne. Mm-hmm. It, it's all going to happen the same. So, it, 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 I think a lot of people really miss their cue on God is when they take things out of context. When they don't read the story as a whole, the whole paragraph as a whole, the full meaning of what it's saying. Because oftentimes with biblical writing, it's going to be tied into a story that is being related, but it shows the attributes of God or whatever, when it's, you know, where it's, turned for those couple of, of, um, of verses and so you have to read that in the context rather than pulling things out because where I see a lot of people with their theology off I see how they quote the Bible and it's literally <coughs> one part of a sentence rather than reading the whole context of what that sentence lays so to bring it back tie that back into the question did God kill Saul or did the king commit suicide he committed suicide. I would say he committed suicide. Yeah. So why did the Bible writers then record that God killed him? Because they believed that God was in charge of good and bad and everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. They blamed God for it all. Because they didn't realize the evil spirit that was behind a lot in the background, too. Go back, go back to Isaiah 4, 5, 45, 6, yeah. 7. I make peace, I create calamity. A metaphor that I like to think about. Okay, again, we, we do this a lot. Almost every week we bring this up. Explain that to someone that hasn't read the Bible and has a bunch of questions about God, and they're going to listen to everything that we just talked about, and they're going to go, What? Does that make sense? How do we explain these ideas? in a way that someone who has lots of questions or is really on the fence because when Jesus comes how many groups of people will there be? Two. Okay? Sheep and the goats the lost and the saved. Okay? But in all through human history there's always been three groups of people. Saved, the lost and those in the middle who were like eh, I'm not really sure. So how do we teach these concepts about God that makes him look good? Okay? Because then again the law of worship If God is like the God in the Old Testament, if you just read it, a lot of people say, I don't want nothing to do with that God. I'm going to have a God like Jesus. But they're the same God. So how do you make sense of all of that? Well, the Old Testament people did not have an, uh, an example like Jesus. And also, too, is that if you read the Old Testament, it's usually all bad news. It's one bad situation after another bad situation after another one. Let's look at parenting. There's more to parenting than getting on to your kids. 
there's a lot of uptime. There's a lot of happy time. There's a lot of playtime. Stuff that don't make it in the book. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's and when everything goes well, it's, everyone gives God the credit. Oh, thank God. Right. That happened, you know. And so it, it's understanding how God works when things don't go to plan. That's, to me, what the Old Testament is. First paragraph here on page forty-one kind of makes uh, makes a note to your point, Mark. I really like how he did this. About halfway down, he said, "The Old Testament nation of Israel, though they were stiff-necked, okay, that's a direct quote from the scriptures. They were stiff-necked, were the only people in the entire world who acknowledged God at all. They were all He had, and because many of them were rebellious and hard-headed." God had to do many difficult things or lose the entire human race. And God loved us too much for that. That's where the calamity comes in. So for Jesus to be born, God needs a couple things. God needs cooperation for Jesus to be born. He needs the cooperation of a willing person. Right? And so Genesis 3, we talk about that a lot. God promises Jesus, the descendants, through Adam, through Abraham, all these things. And God would not have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel. Correct. And God also wouldn't force someone against their will. So the only way for Jesus to be born is to keep open the avenue for Jesus. Down through the generations. And so that's what you see happening. You see God trying to protect the Israelite nation because they're the only nation that acknowledges God. And Satan working to shut the whole thing down. So yeah, God had to do some very extreme things. Okay, I like to think of it like uh, civil war. Okay, picture the civil war right now. Here's the guy that just got shot by a musket ball. Okay, but you don't know he got shot by a musket ball. You just see a bunch of guys holding him down and some dude with a saw just going to town on his leg. And there's blood everywhere and he's screaming bloody murder and it's a horrific scene. From an observer perspective, not knowing what's going on, what does that look like? Torture. Yeah. That would produce an immense amount of fear and trauma in you to witness that. But what are these guys holding this person? Are they trying to kill the guy? Trying Trying to save his life. So they're taking some drastic actions to make it happen. Okay? So what would be even worse was it if there was a person there who knew what was going on, but came up to you and said, can you believe what they're doing to that guy? They're horrible people. They're taking pleasure and causing him so much pain. That's Satan. That's what Satan That's does. A lie. Satan knows the kind of person God is. And he's the one that shows up and says, can you believe what he's doing? You can't trust him. Slithers in there, doesn't he? Slithers right in there. That's exactly what's going on. So Jesus says, okay, well, I'm just going to show up myself and show them firsthand. They can touch me if they want to. I guess that's why it boils down to us really understanding who the Father is mm-hmm. and, and his character. So that when those little doubts or lies come in, we're like, no, that's not true. You know, really getting to know him. To me, some of the things that God did in the Old Testament 
even if they could be uh, interpreted interpreted as loving, they seem still to me like a violation of free will. Mm. You have an example? Yeah, I'm thinking about the time that I guess the Israelites were marching through a certain area with the ark. Okay. And you know the rule was if you touch the ark you die. Mm-hmm. And at one point the ark they went over a bump or something and the ark tipped and some they people died. were trying to save it and they just died by touching it. Yeah. Uh, and that's it seems like even if it is an act of love overall, it seems like for those people who died because of it, it was like using them, these innocent people as an example for others and that just doesn't seem fair to me so how do you understand that then so if you and we know it's not natural like right. you don't touch gold and you die right it's obviously an act of god right right so how do we understand that in a way that makes god look good then so if god is love then god <clears throat> never changes right so then the way i look at those situations more into your point obviously it's a it's not a problem with god it's a problem with my own understanding. Because God is love. It's an absolute. So there's a way to understand those stories that makes God look good. That makes God loving. That doesn't make God look arbitrary. or Because when you read it like that, it makes him look like he's severe. It's arbitrary. He's just like punishing because I had a rule. You know, don't touch the ark. And you did, so now you're dead. Right? If you have a bare electric wire... Uh, and you tell your kid, do not touch that. He's telling you out of love. The ark was was a powerful generator of extreme high power energy. That's how I picture it. God's presence was in there. And he had it ordained only certain <coughs> people could be anywhere near it. Because just that power was deadly. Because we just, as humans, we couldn't, we couldn't be near that without it being protected, and that's why, out of love, he said, "Don't touch this. It will kill you if you do," because of the energy that was in there. Just like you tell your kid, "Don't put your finger in this socket," because if you do, it could kill you. So if your kid does go ahead and still do that, and they die, it wasn't because you were mad or hateful and killed them. It's because they didn't follow your, your rules of protection and not stick their finger in there. You know what I mean? That's how I, that's how I see it, that his power was so great in that ark that although they were thinking they were being helpful, which they thought they really were, there was just so much power there that their, their human bodies couldn't withstand that. And that's why he had just told them, don't touch. So let's go Lola and then Mark and then, yeah. So what I'm recalling now is, you know, our previous previous thing that we were studying uh, talked about how, you know, how we had in our heads that about it talked about hell and how how it was so so hot, so bright, so you know what I mean that if you know people who people who were lost. You know, and, and that's the perception here on earth is, you know, if you're lost, you're going to hell. And, you know, we don't necessarily believe that. But what we came to understand from our lesson was that in actuality, God is so bright. And, you know, 
we're supposed to be going towards him, you know, and people that don't or won't believe in him or won't, you know what I mean, or won't accept him in the end, they, uh, they will be distinguished by his light. I mean, just because it is so bright and consuming and, and then everyone else, you know, who, I guess, who does accept him and, and is able to, you know, understand everything with him, they, you know, they're saved and it doesn't hurt them. There's something with that. Mark. Well, we don't know Uzziah's heart. We don't know the circumstances of what would make him want to reach up and touch the ark. We don't know. Um, was he showing off? Was he? Why was he that close to the ark? If it was such a dangerous place to be, and, and you know, the, you know, a a powerful emblem. Was he in the right place? And then what would be said if he did touch the ark and lived? What would, you know, it, it, it would it passed out by other people in, in the group that would have saw that? Like very much like when God opened up the earth and swallowed all those families in, in the wilderness. Cora. Think about the other families that were watching that were maybe on the fence. Having that happen miraculously and swallowing those people up, tents and everything, and closing right back up again is miraculous. And there's no question. And so that probably for the sake of the many, God lets things happen for the few. So we'll let, this is actually a really great segue to close this lesson and segue into next week in lesson four because it talks about God wants to be your friend and it talks about the tabernacle and the sanctuary system in the Old Testament because what you're talking about Morgan was Uzzah uh, when he reached up was Uzzah? Uriah uh, Uzzah. Uriah the Hittite was the was the other one it's Uzzah yeah Uzzah reached up and touched the ark so so to, to kind of close things down how I understand the situation in the Old Testament sanctuary system it's all symbolic in theater to teach it, it prob Again, who's God working with? Israelites, 400 years. Illiterate. If you're trying to teach an illiterate person something, how do you teach them? You don't read. You right. show them. You show them through action, right? Maybe put on a little play for them. It's an action. It's, you, you, you demonstrate it by action. So all the elements of the Old Testament, Old Testament sanctuary are symbolic of the plan of salvation. What does the Ark of the Covenant symbolize? oneness with God. The Ark of the Covenant is where God's presence dwelt. Oneness with God. When the Ark of the Covenant was in the sanctuary temple, where was it? In the most holy place behind a veil. The Israelite people could not see it. Who could go into the most holy place to the Ark of the Covenant? The Who could do that? Priest. The high priest. Who does the high priest symbolize? Jesus. But they also tied a rope around his ankles in case he fell over. Super good. So good. So all of these points. So if you think about this idea, the Israelite people, symbolically, to get to God, had to go through a process of heart change. The altars, the sacrifices, they all symbolize heart and character transformation. Getting to the high priest, getting to God. It teaches this whole thing. What does Uzzah do? He... 
thought he could go directly to God. In the system, in the sanctuary system, he thought, well, I'll just go directly to God without anything. Or it was just a reflex. Or whatever, whichever, whichever, right? Talk about that too. It's but it, but it, but it's, but this is actually awesome that we're, that, that we kind of touched on this point because next week we're talking about this very thing, the sanctuary system, and all the symbols and what it all means and how it all works together and the greater reality that's trying to teach, right? And it's and it's it's really good. But thank you, Morgan, for bringing that up. Yeah. Let's close it there. God, thank you so much for this conversation and for wrestling with these ideas. And man, some of us are still confused. I know, I know, I am. And it's and it's good. Lead us as we eat lunch together, and lead us as we continue searching for answers and trying to make sense of not only what we've been taught, but what we also have chosen to believe and make sense of new ideas and new concepts and, and all these things. We love you, God, so much. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.